Welcome everybody to this Edge of Mind podcast, where we return for part two of this remarkable conversation with Bernardo Castrup. We start with a discussion about the nature of reality and a deeper look at the notion of evil. Where does contraction fit into this topic? And why do we have such an infantile relationship to evil? The conversation then moves to explore the nature of reality. If it is of the nature of mind, what exactly is this mind? What are the dangers of reifying the mind and the hazards of reification altogether? If the mind is not a thing, what is it? Emptiness comes into the picture and its relationship to quantum field theory. And what about authentic philosophy and how philosophers go astray? Bernardo talks about Nietzsche and the importance of embodied philosophy before transitioning into the topic of transformation and how to affect it. How does one really transform? And how far can intellect take you? What are its strengths and weaknesses? Is there a place for psychedelics on the journey? And then how about the gifts and gaps of relational quantum mechanics? Also its association with the king of emptiness, the philosophy of Nagarjuna. Bernardo talks about the vertigo of eternity and how one can avoid it. He then closes with personal stories about the role of praxis or practice in his life and the process of applying and practicing ideas. He shares his fundamental practice of recognizing the movements of the impersonal within and how not to resist it. Bernardo then summarizes his practice in two simple words, pay attention. Be in the service of the diamond and find ultimate freedom in that quote-unquote slavery. You asked me, and I didn't get to that, um, is nature at its foundational level, is it something that we could accurately describe as unconditional love? So is there, is there a value judgment that we can make about the bottom level of, na of nature? Is it neutral or does it have valuations? Uh, again, um, I'm not enlightened, so I can't tell can't give you an answer based on direct experience, but I am an attentive observer of nature. So if you look at nature before human beings, uh, the natural world with animals, plants, fungus, and, and the ecosystems of this planet, to the extent that they are not yet touched by, by human hands, what do I see? What I see is that unless you are a vegetable or a fungus, you have to kill to survive. And, and that killing is not sanitized. It's not like here in the Netherlands. If you want to die, you call your doctor, who you have known for 30 years, and he comes to you in the comfort of your home and gives you an injection that makes you pass away lightly. And That's not how death occurs in nature. For animals to kill one another, it takes time. It takes a lot of blood, a lot of pain. It's messy. Uh, there's this documentary I watched years ago, never left my mind. The pride of lions managed to pull down a medium-sized elephant who got separated from, from its group. And they ate the elephant alive, starting from its hind legs, for six hours before the elephant passed out. Um, that's nature. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in your backyard, now in the summer, earthworms are being cut into pieces while alive and wiggling by ants. <clears throat> it's a bloodbath. So <clears throat> if you ask me, you know, by observation of the natural world, whether nature is morally neutral or has moral valuations, I would be tempted to say it's morally neutral. Mm. Um, it acts spontaneously and not based on value judgments. Um, 
unconditional love is obviously a part of it because we see it happening, uh, even amongst animals. Um, but I would say uh, the infliction of pain and, and, and fear, they are equally a part of it, apparently, because this stuff happens. It's, it's just out there. Um, you know, if there are other inhabited planets on this universe and their star goes to supernova, and, you know, they are barbecued. And, and, and according to, uh, I forgot his name now, Dante, according to Dante, mm -hmm. um, stars are the image of an outpouring of love, you know, the love that moves the sun and the other stars, uh, he wrote. And yet that outpouring of love burns you to a crisp. Um, you could say, well, that's not good or evil. It's just mm -hmm. an absence of, of valuations, of moral valuations. It's just nature being spontaneous. And so that's what I'm inclined to. I think nature in and of itself, uh, aside from human minds that have developed the higher level mental functions required to pass uh, moral valuations, I think nature before that is, is neutral. That that would be my my suspicion. And look, I, I think we have a a very puerile, infantile relationship with what we call evil. Uh, we think that evil is sadism at a large scale, um, but it's it's obviously wrong because sadism is by definition something personal at a very low scale. A sadist will only derive pleasure from inflicting suffering if he if he has a direct intimate relationship with the subject who is suffering who is then a masochist if it's mutually consen consensual um, that that modality of mentation um, doesn't scale to the to, to to the impersonal like uh, putin putin is is the symbol of the greatest evil in the world today is he a sadist i'm sure he's not it, what he does is he replaces the concreteness of human experience with uh, geopolitical abstractions. In his mind, he's doing the right thing. Yep. Just like in Hitler's mind, he was doing the right thing. That is evil. It's, it's, evil is when you replace the concreteness of human suffering with abstractions. Uh, when you replace reality with an abstraction and you tell yourself, I am doing the right thing because this abstraction is true. That's evil. Mm. Um, and we also think that uh, only the others are evil and there is no evil in ourselves. That's profoundly infantile. And that's why evil grabs you on the butt uh, uh, when you turn 40. You were a righteous citizen all of your life, not paying attention to the evil in you because you think there is none or you tell yourself there is none until one day you pick up a rifle and you kill 15 in the nearest shopping mall. Uh, this is our naive relationship with evil. With evil, I mean, if we if we speak religious language, uh, Andrew, um, what we haven't realized yet is that the devil is secretly in the service of God. Yeah, Lucifer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's what we are missing. So yeah. why am I saying all this? Because on the one hand, I'm not excluding evil from the fabric of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, I, if unconditional love is there, then so is evil in the form of abstractions or in the form of sadism at a, at a small scale. Um, but at the same time, 
I think when we look upon evil as something fully undesirable, we are not keeping our yeah. eyes on the ball. Yeah. Because sometimes, not sometimes, I think it's systematically so. If you don't suffer, you don't ask the right questions, yeah. you don't ask the deep questions, yeah. and you do not evolve, you do not become more mature. You would have an Epicurean life, as uh, Tolstoy put it, a purely Epicurean life. In other words, you're just riding away thoughtlessly, having fun, and at the end of it, you look back and you go like, what was this about again? Right. And it was all for nothing. Uh, um, it is suffering, the suffering that life imposes on us, that stops us on our tracks and forces us to ask, oh, wait a moment, what's going on here? What is this for? Who am I? Why am I suffering? What, what am I supposed to do? What is the meaning of this whole thing? Yeah. And uh, it, it, suffering forces metacognitive introspection. Yeah. And if you think enlightenment is full metacognitive introspection, then maybe suffering is another way to go. <laughs> because yeah. uh, it's, it, it's, what, it, it's nature's way to force you to stop and contemplate what's going on. So I think the evil that inflicts suffering is as much a part of nature as anything else. Um, and to some extent, it's not even undesirable. Of course, what Putin is doing is completely undesirable, completely unnecessary. You're achieving nothing, nothing because at some point, after you have extracted the juice out of your suffering and you've learned everything there is to learn from that, if you continue to suffer, then that is futile. And that's for nothing. And usually we do that to ourselves. Uh, we, ex we squeeze the juice out of, out of our suffering. And then because of habit, we continue to force ourselves to suffer. We continue yeah. to torture ourselves because we don't know any other way to go about life. We've, we've become habituated to that. So that's one form of unnecessary suffering that should be eradicated if we could. And the other one is large-scale suffering posed by futile and senseless geopolitical abstraction, which is... You know, the the Putins, the 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 Hitlers and uh, and the Stalins and 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 the others uh, that we've seen through history, because that's unnecessary suffering. Life, by by its nature, already imposes enough suffering on us. We all have to leave the the maternal safety and and face this world at some point. We all lose our loved ones. We all get sick. We all have unavoidable, unavoidable disappointments. So it's enough, that natural suffering. We don't need to add to that. But that, that natural suffering, which sometimes is induced by what we might call evil, um, like the evil of a disease that robbed you of your loved one. Like um, my father was uh, robbed from me when I was 12. Mm. Um, we may call that evil. I would say it's just nature being nature, and it's not even undesirable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just, again so much here, Bernardo. What comes to mind is to what degree is it viable for you to associate evil with again returning to this narrative of contraction? I mean, when I look at, at a Putin, and again, I look at my own experience, the speed of the spin, the degree of the contraction, is correlative to the degree of the self-sense, the separation then also, the more I reify the sense of self, the more by immediate implication, I reify the sense of other. And therefore I don't give a crap about the other because I can't even feel myself. And so to whatever, to what extent can we associate returning some of these narratives, bring them together, this notion of evil 
with hypercontraction, um, the speed of the spin being so self-centered, so imploded, such an incredible black hole, you've lost touch with everything. There's no sense of empathy, feeling, whatever. And so therefore, through that, perhaps an understanding of what could be done as a curative ingredient with these sorts of things. Does that hold traction for you? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, if your understanding is not purely intellectual, and the, unfortunately, analytic philosophy, academic philosophy today has become a purely conceptual exercise. They are assembling structures with dominoes that conceptually they, they look right. And then two years later, they look back at it and, ah, no, it's wrong. And then they reassemble the dominoes and publish another book. Uh, that, that's academic philosophy for you today. It's not true philosophy. Philosophy has to be embodied. Um, it, it, you have to take your understanding seriously. You have to actually believe what you are saying. And when you're playing conceptual games, you don't actually believe what you're saying. You're just moving the dominoes around. And many of my famous colleagues out there in the world today, which you have heard about, yeah. that's what they do. That's, they put, they're, they're that's good the business dominoes. of analytic philosophy in academia. Yeah. Um, but if you internalize a certain understanding, it inevitably yeah. leads to life changes. Not all of them good. For instance, empathy is something that true understanding increases a lot. Even recovering your natural self increases empathy because your natural self is empathic. I remember when I was a kid, I had a fight with a little friend of mine. And I managed to place the right punch at the right time. And he began to bleed from his nose. I went into despair. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. thought, oh, my God, I hurt him. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember that feeling still today. I, I was like, I needed to not be myself. I was just out of, I mean, the, the empathy with him, knowing that I was the cause of it, was just, I wasn't distraught yeah. because of that. And yeah. and. That's that's your natural self. You know, yeah. you, you recover that. You don't even need an understanding. You recover your natural self. Your natural self is rooted in reality, in nature. And it intuitively picks up on that reality without needing a conceptual model like we do as adults. But um, because I, at least my idealism is embodied in me, at least, if not in others, but at least in me, life becomes more difficult in other ways. Like the first three weeks of the Ukraine war, I was completely dysfunctional. Yeah. yeah. I had to relearn how to be a, a bastard, how yeah. to <laughs> compartmentalize my empathy and put it in a room and lock it up for most of the week and thus just visit during the weekend so I can preserve my humanity. Um, so I had to learn that uh, because I was completely dysfunctional. Um, so again, now beware of what you want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a surgeon's general's warning on the spiritual path that you know, when we open to that degree, then we become more transparent not only to ourselves but to the world at large. And this, in this, openness can translate into into hypersensitivity. And and you know, one one maxim I think my friend Ken Wilber talks about it this way is uh, along the spiritual path, you feel things more, but eventually they hurt you less because you don't give them a place to land. And so I find that very interesting. The one thing, uh, there's two things I want to tie together, uh, Bernardo. There's so much rich material here. I'm wondering, one of the big issues, and this, the, these things are, these narratives are all connected. So if, if there is an original sin in Buddhism, and of course there isn't, it's one of the reasons I like it so much. If there is an original sin in Buddhism, I would argue that it's reification, born of ignorance. And therefore, reification is really almost closely synonymous with materialism itself. 
And so what I'm concerned with here, interested in, in how this relates to you, and you know this is, is, a, is a, um, a study, a student of the neurosciences, that we talk about mind and we talk about mind at large, and, and there's an inherent um, monism implied here. Well, I'm wondering if it's more um, accurate to talk about nonism, that even when we talk about mind, and this relates to this notion of identity, the plasticity of identity, that ego is just one dimension, one locus, space-time coordinate, locus of identity, and part of the spectrum of our being. And even understanding that helps with the dereification of the self-sense, that we're not just this one monolithic thing. So to me, isn't it more accurate, Bernardo, to talk about minds, plural, not mind? That every moment in a pixelated atomistic way out of the zero-point energy field or the Dharmakaya, whatever term you want to talk about, reality is popping in and out of existence. Mind is expressing itself at these lightning-fast speeds that we flicker fuse together to create the illusion of continuity. But these, these principles, I think, are important because otherwise we reify even the notion of mind, idealism. And there's a, there's a wonderful maxim. I wanted to share this with you from the Mahamudra tradition. So it has so much power. Where it goes like this. They were called the four pointings out. The first one is all appearances are mind. Second one, mind itself is empty. Third, emptiness is spontaneously present. Fourth, spontaneous presence is self-liberated. And therefore, understanding the empty nature of mind itself is actually important because otherwise one can slide into a subtle reification that takes place even in the idealistic trajectory. So can you talk to us a little yeah. bit about that? Minds, not mind, the plasticity of identity, yeah. and then this. So th there are two points. One is what is meant by mind, yeah. and the other point is reification. I want to speak to them uh, separately, Beautiful. Um, although they are obviously interrelated. Um, what I mean when I use the word mind is just subjectivity. In spirituality, uh, it seems that many spiritual teachers use the word mind to mean particular contents of mind, like thoughts, uh, particular expressions of subjectivity. That's what they call mind. Uh, thinking is mind. Um, but I use the word mind in, according to the meaning in the Western tradition, uh, which equated mind with psyche, which it was mm -hmm. also so, um, which basically means just the empty field of subjectivity. Now, the way to understand why it's empty is the following. Every experience is an excitation of that field. Physicists mm. understand mm. this immediately because quantum mm. field theory is based mm. on exactly the same idea. The field itself isn't a thing. It's empty. Um, but when the field gets excited, then that's what we call things, like ele elementary subatomic particles are patterns of excitation of a quantum field. And without the excitation, there is no particle, there's nothing. There is only the potential for excitation, which is what we call the field. The field is not a thing, it's a potential for things when that potential gets excited. So mind is exactly like that. Mind is pure subjectivity. In and of itself, if it's, if it's not excited, it's not a thing, it's not even an experience. It's the potential for experience. Uh, but when it gets excited, then you have experiences. And things are experiences, uh, of course, insofar as we can determine. Um, so that's what I mean by, by mind. Mind, I mean by it, a field of subjectivity that isn't a thing. It's the potential for experience. And experiences are patterns of excitation of that field. And because there are 
infinite possible patterns of excitation, out of that one empty thing, you can have the infinitude of the complexity of nature. Now, this is not difficult mm -hmm. to understand for anybody in, in, in working on high energy physics or fundamental physics, because it's the ABC one, two, three of quantum field theory. The field is not a thing. Things are patterns of excitation of the field. And that's why everything can exist out of no thing. Yeah. It's not nothing because exactly. the potential is, is exactly. not nothing. There is a exactly. potential uh, in nature, a metaphysical potential in nature. So it's not nothing, but it's, it's no thing. Yeah. It's not a thing because things are its excitations. Um, so that's the first thing. Now on reification, uh, I think the dilemma we face um, now and have faced for over a, a century has been presaged in the life of Nietzsche. Mm. Because you see, we all have a deep intuition of transcendence. Uh, and that intuition is both a awareness that there is something transcendent in the sense that something that we cannot perceive or conceptualize, it transcends the intellect, it's beyond the reach of the intellect. And we feel a pull towards it, which, you could refer to as the religious impulse. Exactly. And, and it's very natural. Re religion is absolutely natural. It, it, it has been a part of human life for 95% of the human population throughout history, if not more. So it's completely natural. Um, so it, it reflects both the awareness that there is transcendence and the pull to go to it. Now, something that transcends you is by definition bigger than you. Mm. It cannot be corralled into the confines of, of the ego, uh, of the individual. But if you conceptually and intellectually refuse transcendence, if you go against your natural intuition of transcendence, your natural religious impulse, you face a peculiar dilemma that was embodied most in Nietzsche, because Nietzsche had a tremendous innate religious disposition, a profoundly, profoundly religious person. And we know that from good sources. We know that from Lou Salome, the only woman he ever loved in his life. And she wrote about it while Nietzsche was still alive, crazy, but still alive, in a wonderful book called Nietzsche by Lou Salome. I would recommend everybody to read that book. Um, so he, he repressed his natural impulse towards transcendence, by convincing himself, given the Darwinian and materialist ethos of his time in the late 19th century, that there was no God and religion was nonsense. So what he had to do was to find transcendence in, in himself. Mm. And that was the Ubermensch, that was the mm. Superman, which of course is, is a responsibility that the individual cannot bear. It's too weighty. We are not atlases holding the world on our shoulders. Uh, the individual cannot bear the, the, the weight of the responsibility of transcendence. And it drove him literally insane. No surprise there. The man went nuts. Of course, because he was a sincere philosopher. His philosophy was embodied. It was not just a conceptual game for him. He lived his philosophy. And the moment he put that responsibility on his shoulder, he, he collapsed. Now, what others do when they try to do the same thing, and that's the danger, 
is when you reify the individual and try to turn the individual into a historical figure bigger than life. You try to turn your moist, warm, stinky body into a marble statue right. uh, while you're still alive. And that's what Hitler tried to do. Hitler, he, he, he identified himself with the whole of the Germanic peoples. And he tried to bear the responsibility for the destiny of the Germanic peoples. And that not only is a re responsibility that cannot be contained in an individual, if you try to either drive you insane or will inflate you. And that's what happened to him. He became, well, nuts, but inflatedly so. You try to make your individual a historical figure bigger than life. And that is what we call evil. That's real evil. Sadism is not evil. Sadism is localized, containable, it's not, not welcome, shouldn't be tolerated, uh, but it's not a social problem. Uh, this is the reification of the individual to try to comport within its boundaries. The entire weight, the sheer weight of transcendence is what will drive you to evil under the guise of profound good. Exactly, exactly. So in a certain weird way, it's a very twisted substitute gratification because <clears throat> you know one of the things that that, that you pinged on earlier <clears throat> bernardo my languaging is by by discovering the uh, literally discovering the ultimate empty nature of the self sense that that in buddhism is is emptiness and we've been you've been circumambulating this even the notion of the excitation of the zero point energy field that that is an absolutely perfect definition of emptiness in the Buddhist tradition, but the emptiness is also fullness. It's plenitude, it's potentiality for arising. And so what the way I read this is that this ties into the, the notion of fear. There, there are two fundamental twofold fear, fear of inherent non-existence, that's fear of emptiness, the no-thingness aspect of our identity and by definition reality, but also associated with that is the fear of emptiness, the fear of fullness, the fear of being everything. And so someone like Hitler, is a substitute gratification instead of realizing that he is everything, right? By becoming nothing, he becomes everything, is perverted into this twisted thing. I am going to become everything. I'm going to conquer it, appropriate it. And exactly. even Putin, even Putin, it's yeah. a raging, insane, fundamentally reducible to these principles, application of, of, of these teachings that fundamentally, yeah. instead of being everything, just relax and be the universe. No, I don't get it. I still have this longing. I have this impulse. I have an itch. I have to scratch. I don't know how to scratch it. I just know I feel empty yeah. and a deficient sense. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to consume everything. Exactly. In this case, That's the difference. It's, it's the difference between being everything by understanding you are not the individual and trying to bring everything into the individual. That's the, and look, it's not only Hitler and Putin. This is, happen this is happening all the time. Company CEOs. Uh, Trump, the closer he gets to, to death, the older he gets, the higher the need for him to transcend uh, individuality. And, and, and that will go completely off the rails <laughs> at some point. Uh, um, you see that everywhere. Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch in his yeah. 80s, still fighting the fights of, a, an, of an adolescent exactly. because he's trying to transcend the individual by consuming the transpersonal. That, that, that's the right word, consuming. You, exactly. you hit the exactly. nail in the head. So that's you, you transcend, try to transcend the individual, not by dropping the individual, but, but by having the individual consume the exactly. world. 
And unfortunately, that's the recipe our culture gives us. Yeah. Instead of the instead of the individual consuming itself fundamentally. And so really for me, Bernardo, again, we, I, I want to bring this back to this extraordinary cash value, practical street level application of what we're talking about here. The fundamentally, this is the source of the obesity epidemic at every level, whether it's physical obesity or for me, intellectual obesity, I have to consume that next ideology, that next book. I don't get a fat belly, but I get a fat head, spiritual obesity, spiritual materialism. And so to me, right here, this misunderstanding of these fundamental principles, substitute gratifications instead of the real thing. That's why we have so many problems. We're eating the menu instead of the meal. And that's why we're getting fat and not full. And you can see this at every level of consumerism. It's killing the planet. It's killing other people. And it all can be reduced to these fundamental ideological principles that can seem like philosophical arm sharing. But lordy, lordy, this is the way to explain the vast variety of the shit show that we know of samsara in the world today. Yeah, we are an adolescent culture in the sense that, um, you know, the, the recipes and the formulas we get from, from our culture are suitable, suitable for the first half of life when you have to carve out a space in the world for you. Um, and there is no other way to do that but to have some degree of self-affirmation and so you, you carve out a space for you. You have a job, you have some degree of participation in the society where you live, uh, you, you have a home, you can put food on the table, you start building a family. So that's the recipe for the first 35 years of life. But older cultures have always known that once you get there, then the game changes. And there is a sense in which it becomes the opposite of that. It's not about carving out, carving out space for you as an individual. It's about transcending your individuality and dropping old systems of valuations, dropping the old understanding about what's important, what life is about. And it, it, it's a different, a different turn, a different perspective on life. But our culture, unlike older cultures, do not have recipes and 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 and, and yeah. guidance for that. On the contrary, we we figured that although everything changes in the second when you transit through you no know, that Saturnian phase in the in the middle of life, uh, we think that we can only keep applying the same rules, the same values, the same goals, the same recipes. So if you have a house, then the second one. If you have a car, then the second one. And if you have the second, well, then a boat, a yacht. And, and if your company is already turning revenues of $10 million, well, the neighbor is turning 100. So I want the 100. And after that, the billion. And then you end up with Elon Musk and and, and uh, the head of Amazon. Uh, 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 what was his name again? Bezos. Bezos. Yeah, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Yeah. Exchanging farps online like two teenagers. <laughs> two teenagers. Right. And, and so we have lots of septuagenarians and octuagenarian teenagers yep. in our society today. We've dropped adulthood and maturity yep. off. Yep. It's gone. Yep. This is, and, and yeah, that this leads to dysfunctional situations shouldn't be, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. So, Bernardo, let's get practical here then. So, W2EF, WTF, do you do? How do you shake the snow globe short of? you know, nature's fundamental imposition of impermanence, old age, sickness, and death. 
how can people like us and people who are listening work? Really, what the question is transformation. What is the mechanics, the mechanism of transformation? How, how can we, in any way, outside of what we're doing with our life work, um, invite um, avenues of transformation by pointing out the limitations of the previous paradigm? I mean, really, open question for you. How can we work to change the samsaric agenda? Sincere answer. I have no clue. I have no idea. And, and I'm completely in peace with having no clue because that too is, is an implication of dropping the individual in you. Um, I no longer feel personal responsibility for the end result of this planet-wide process. Uh, who am I to try to comprehend the dynamics of, of that process and take responsibility for the end result? All that I can do is to not fight nature when nature is trying to express itself through me. In other words, to pay attention to the impersonal within me, to the movements of the impersonal within me, which most people don't even know it's there, let alone identify. It's also part of growing up. It's to, to realize what movements of your mind are yours and, and which ones aren't yours at all. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it, you're thinking thoughts like you see the houses as you walk down the lane. They are not yours. Uh, they are movements of the impersonal within you. And after a decade of a lot of suffering, I, I figured out how to, I think, how to identify the movements of the impersonal within me. And I go along with it. And I don't need to understand how this will contribute to the final solution. Or even if there is a solution, I don't know. And I'm not trying to know. And I don't need to know. Uh, uh, my responsibility is to not resist what nature is trying to do through me. Now, do I believe that preaching will solve anything? Well, I reserve the right as a little monkey evolved on this planet to think that it doesn't, because otherwise 2,000 years of Christianity would have solved a lot of things. Yeah. There has been a lot of preaching. So it doesn't seem the way to go about it. So how do we differentiate what I'm doing from, from preaching? I don't know. But again, I don't need to know. Yeah. The only thing I need to know is, is this what nature spontaneously is trying to do through me? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And I, it's crystal clear to me because yeah. when I resist it, I suffer in ways that yeah. I know I don't need to suffer. Yeah. And yeah. if I go with it, then I am in peace, even though I don't quite understand if or why I'm helping <laughs> in any way. And even if I actually don't think I'm helping anything. Yeah. And, I, and I'm still in peace that I'm doing this. So, yeah, I don't know if this helps you. I didn't no, answer it's it's First of all, it's extraordinarily honest, candid, and, and points to the enormity that that, that fundamentally there, there's a, a, a maxim in the, the Buddhist tradition, don't expect applause. That you, It's a Lojong slogan, mind training slogan, where basically you just do the right thing based on your daemon, letting nature work its way through you. And then that's all you can do. That's the best you can live your life. And then short of, uh, you know, Alpert had some idea of throwing LSD into the water system. You know, I, I, I'm hoping, and this is to me, I, I, I interview some guests where they talk about this impending punctuated equilibrium where there's going to be this cataclysmic awakening in direct proportion to the darkness. I, I keep my fingers crossed and pray that, that it may be so, but developmentally, historically, it doesn't seem to work that way. That's an open question for me. But a couple of things, Bernardo, as we start to slowly wrap up, because, oh, I mean, really, 
I could talk to you for hours. So incredibly rich. The strengths and the limitations of intellect, the cognitive apparatus, which you archetypally represent in the most dazzling way, how far can it take you? How much of reality can you grok? And where does that, in your experience and also um, academically, electronically, praxis? At what point does praxis come into play? Because for me, philosophy, and again, I'm a dilettante, I'm not a professional philosopher. For me, philosophy, a little bit like politics, has a slight pejorative tinge in the sense that it can be um, constipation from the head on up, where you're just mentally masturbating and 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 whatever. You know the story. Oh, the most of so, it is that. Most yeah, of it so, is mental masturbation. So at what point in, in your life, as, as a, the archetype of incisive Nagarjian, you know, critical analysis, dissecting reality into its fundamental ingredients, how far can that take you? And the role of praxis, practice, both in your life personally, if you don't mind going there, and, and somewhat, um, yeah. so to speak, theoretically. Well, let, let, let me start by just uh, trying to echo what you just said. If you find yourself in, in the position where I find myself, in which I have to anonymously review technical manuscripts submitted to a few well-known uh, philosophy journals, only then do you grasp the sheer amount of mental masturbation going on yeah. out there. Totally useless, disconnected, conceptual, cloudy nonsense that would do nothing to anyone other than to help you achieve your quota of publications per year so you maybe get tenure at some point. That, that's all. That's all. It, totally. it's, it's a massive waste of human resources and creativity it, at, at a scale that is just, sometimes you go like, my God, what are we doing? Is this what philosophy has turned into? No, conceptual card games, pure mental masturbation. Um, true philosophy is not that. Even when it's wrong, like probably everything Nietzsche ever said was wrong, <laughs> but it was embodied. It was mm -hmm. lived mm -hmm. and it helped him mature. It, it, it brought him somewhere and therefore brought the mind of nature through him somewhere. Um, so that's, that's just the beginning. Now, um, <laughs> Your question was, uh, uh, sorry, I missed the... Uh, yeah. yeah, how far can intellect take oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah. when yeah. it's used in, in the best possible yeah. way? I think, and this is what happened to me, um, when I did an MBTI test, MBTI, mm. whatever, that personality test yep. with 16 uh, yep. profiles, when I did that in my 20s, I scored a perfect score on the thinking dimension. Pure thinking. I don't think it happens very often that anybody scores a perfect score on thinking. I did. If I would do that test again today, it would be completely different. Um, and the reason was the following. I have always taken my intellect extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. When I was in my teens and my 20s, I thought this is the only reliable avenue to knowledge. Today, I know that the intellect has led most of us astray throughout history. Yeah. But yeah. At, at the time, I really believed that. So I took my intellect very seriously. But one thing that happened to me, and it doesn't seem to have happened to many other people, is that I could not help but be intellectually honest towards myself. Mm -hmm. 
And I see so much self-inflicted intellectual dishonesty ar around today that I, I'm not quite capable of relating to it. I don't know how that plays out. I don't know what happens in the mind of people for that to happen. I couldn't help but be intellectually honest towards myself. So when I discerned clearly what we today call the hard problem of consciousness mm -hmm. in my 20s, I, I, I could not look in the mirror and say, well, this is something we will solve at some point in the future. So let's just go merrily on. No, I couldn't do that. Because to me, that was an obvious sign that I took a certain path of reasoning that led to an internal contradiction. So it's plain obvious. Something was wrong in that pattern, that pattern of thinking. So I had this apparently to my advantage. Apparently, even if it's natural, it's not average because there is so much intellectual dishonesty out there, which I, frankly, I don't quite understand. But again, I don't need to understand. It's okay, you know? I'm not yeah. responsible for it, so I don't need to understand. But uh, it was my intellect that forced itself to recognize the limits of the intellect in mm, my beautiful. 30s. Beautiful. Because it's only when you mature that you realize, for instance, that uh, logic is intrinsically arbitrary. You cannot logically argue for the validity of logic because that's circular reasoning. Yeah, the five axioms that underlie Aristotelian logic, they seem to have a lot of empirical grounding and there is debate about, uh, around that because quantum mechanics actually uh, contradicts those five axioms. But they are just that, they are just axioms, things that seem to be self-evidently true to our monkey mind. But who is to say that the monkey has evolved enough to be able to recognize self-evident truths instead of deluding itself. Yeah. I mean, the limits of the intellect become painfully clear to a self-honest intellect, if you know what I mean. And that's rare. That's a rare bird. It may be rare statistically, but it seems to me to be incredibly natural mm -hmm. that if you pursue your intellect consequently mm -hmm. and honestly, it's inevitable you will confront its limitations. Mm -hmm. um, and then how do you use the intellect to make sense of this? Well, it's, it's also very self-evident. We, we think symbolically, we use reason. Uh, uh, to think symbolically means to replace elements of realities with concepts and then work out those concepts and translate the results to reality. In other words, you need some kind of inner language either language like English or the language of mathematics or conceptual language, you need some kind of language. And we think linguistically only for about 30,000, maybe 50,000 years. It's a blink of an eye ago, it just happened. The intellect has just been born to think that it's mature enough to cognize every salient aspect of nature, as far as the meaning and purpose of life is concerned, is intellectually speaking, preposterous. Hubris. Yeah. It's absolutely preposterous. Yeah. It's, it's the intellect contradicting itself. So an intellectual edification of the intellect is internally contradictory mm. because if you pursue the intellect consequently, you will very quickly find out that the limits of the intellect are very near. We see very little, very, very little. Mm. There's a lot more going on that is not amenable to intellect, intellectual comprehension, comprehension than the things that are amenable to intellectual comprehension. The problem is that 
we create our whole lives around the things that are amenable. Exactly. exactly. Let, me, let me give you a concrete example from my other profession. Um, I'm also a computer scientist. Uh, uh, people say, well, we must understand nature very well because we can build these exquisite computers uh, uh, reliably. They all work. Well, what people don't know is that in computer engineering, there is a concept called signal-to-noise ratio. And what it means is that we build everything so the thing we understand is expressed and everything else that we don't understand, which we don't even know how much it is, we lock out of the system. So we design systems that are immune to everything we don't understand and operate only on the basis of what we do. And we yep. call it a good signal to noise <laughs> ratio. That's the technical term. So therefore our lives, our world around us is permeated by everything we understand. So we think we understand everything. No, 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 that's by construction. We, we just shut out everything that we don't understand, which may be 99% of nature. Actually, it's at least 95% of nature or 96% of nature, because even matter, which we don't understand, but we fancy that we do, uh, even matter is only 4% uh, of what is out there. And even matter, we don't understand. We think matter, no, most people think we, we saw the Higgs boson at CERN. No, we didn't see. And then the people who know we didn't see, they think we've measured the Higgs boson directly. No, not even that. The Higgs boson decays before it uh, interacts with any measurement surface. If people actually knew what it, what it is that we mean when we say we found the Higgs boson, they would go like, is that it? Really? Oh, wow, fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. There's a couple, couple of things that really come to mind here, Bernard, I want to share. You, you may know this famous um, story about, you know, Mullah Nasruddin, right? The great Sufi jokester. Fantastic story where <clears throat> being up to the modern age where Nasruddin is, is looking outside underneath a streetlight for his keys. And he's scurrying around. He heard this. He's scurrying around, looking, looking, looking. And the neighbor comes up and, and says, Mullah, what are you doing, man? He goes, I lost my keys. Um, oh, I'll help. So they're out there looking together, looking, looking. And finally, you know, half an hour later, the neighbor says, I'm not finding anything, man. Like, where did you lose these things? Oh, I lost them back in my house. And they will, why the F are we looking out here? Because there's more light out here, right? <laughs> we look where the looking is easy, but that's not where the key was lost and therefore can be found. And so the other thing along this that, that I wanted to share with you, and again, the genius and the guardian, I'm not sure. I haven't heard references from you and your work of his work. If, if it's there, I haven't seen it. But his classic um, treatise, The Fundamental Entrance to the Middle Way, the Mula Madamaka Karakas, that influenced Rovelli so beautiful. One of the things that, that Nagarjuna does that, that you do to a great degree is use the intellect against itself. What Nagarjuna did that he was unparalleled was like a, a master jujitsu artist. He basically took whatever came at him and turned it back upon the presenter. And, and his, his form of reasoning was called the non-affirming negation. In a certain sense, there's an affirmation quality where you're, you're not just negating, but there is a slight, and again, not a criticism, a math, massive applause. There is this affirmation of the idealistic approach. But the non-affirming negation seems to be a large part of what you're doing as well, that you're just negating, negating, whatever, you know, look at, look at the, the inherent fallacies in the construct, in this case, the edifice of the materialistic view, 
turn it against itself, let this house of cards reveal itself and then crumble under its own weight. And to me, when I look at your work, that, that's part of the extraordinary contribution. And Bernardo, I, I've been around the block. I've read a few things. I've seen a lot of things. And your genius in that capacity is without peer. Your, your ability to, to, to actually engage in this community, first of all, is unparalleled. Your courage in doing so is, is applaudable. And then underneath it all, this, this, this sense of irony, humor, that 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 um, the levity you could say behind the 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 seriousness of what you're doing is is just something that really warms my heart and brings just a smile to my face. So I just wanted to throw that out as a warm. There there are a couple of comments I want to make. Please, the, the first one is the following: um, you've you've put me to great heights several times today. But based on everything else you said, I, I think that you know that none of this is me and you're just playing a social game here. So in that sense, it's fine. I'm not going to resist um, the social game because I, I, I think you know better yeah. <laughs> uh, deep inside. Um, the other thing about um, Nagarjuna or Nagarjuna, the, Nagarjuna, the, the yeah. correct pronunciation Nagarjuna. is in Ravelli's use of uh, Nagarjuna. I would say the following. The intellect is very limited. But for certain things, it has proven useful. So it's not valueless. It's not something to discard and throw away. The other thing is, even with its limitations, if one chooses to make one's case based on the intellect, then one has to be consistent within the rules of the intellect. Now, you might say, well, the intellect is not reliable. Okay, then, then play a different game. Play the game of intuition. But then you don't build your case half based on the intellect and then switch to something else because then you're just shooting yourself in the foot. It's a, it, you, know, you, you don't change the rules of the game after you're playing, you started playing. So, because otherwise even the limited value of the intellect, now it will be zero because you, know, you start playing the game according to intellectual rules, then you switch to something else. Yeah, now, now it's just nonsense. Yeah, even the that. limited value of the intellect is being thrown away. And what Carlo has done, and I, I've confronted him with this once, and, and me and him, mm -hmm. and, uh, and um, others have indirectly, indirectly, indirectly confronted him with my statements about this thing that I'm going to talk about now. Mm -hmm. So it's no news for him. Um, I think he built relational quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. which is a perspective on quantum mechanics that I agree with. It basically says all physical entities are relational. Yep. They don't have absolute existence. They are like movement. Movement is relational. Now, if you're inside a train, you're not moving in relation to the train, but you are moving in relation to the platform. There is no absolute movement. There is only movement in relation to something else. And, and relational quantum mechanics, uh, based on empirical results, you know, laboratory results, uh, says that all physical entities are just like movement. They are relative to, to, the, to, the, to the perspective of measurement. In technical terms, they are contextual. Uh, they do not have absolute existence. If they are not being observed, there is nothing there. For the same reason that, that if all that existed in the universe were a billiard ball, 
then it makes no difference, it would make no difference whether the billiard ball is static or moving because there is no reference for it. So you can't even talk about existence in that case. So you cannot talk about the existence of the physical world in absolute terms because all physical entities are relational, just like movement. That's relational quantum mechanics. Yep. But then, of course, it immediately raises or implies the following. Relational entities exist in relation to absolutes. Movement is relational, but you and the train are absolutes. You see what I mean? Totally. And, and so right away, can't you just say relationships to other relationships? There is no absolute. But that's exactly what Ravelli is doing. What he's saying is the following. There are no absolutes. Relationships are relationships between relationships. Right. And those are relationships between meta relationships. And those are relationships uh -huh. between meta meta relationships. And so on and so forth, ad infinitum. In philosophy, we call it infinite regress. Exactly. And yeah. it's an example of a fallacy. Yeah. It's nonsense. So it only will make sense, Bernardo, so educate me here. So it only makes sense if it's relational then to some absolute. Is that what you're positing? Exactly. And is that your challenge to Carlo Exactly. Then? And yeah, so the absolute, so say more about that. What what then is that absolute? Okay, so bear with me a little longer. Okay. Sorry, I'm so excited. I can't. So to, to translate this into language everybody can understand, what yeah. Ravelli is saying is entirely equivalent to the following. He's saying that everything is movement, but there is nothing that moves. Move, movement is a relationship between movements, but there is nothing that moves. Mm. In other words, mm. you are saying nothing. It, it's, it's a statement you can construct linguistically in a grammatically correct way, but it has no meaning. There's no semantic value to it. You are saying absolutely nothing. If I say everything that exists is movement and there is nothing that moves. Well, I, I produced words in English but I'm saying absolutely nothing. And, and in philosophy, it's one of the, it's one textbook example of the fallacy. Fallacy is nonsensical stuff when your thinking goes astray. It's a textbook example of the infinite regress fallacy. It's turtles all the way down. So for Ravelli, it's movement all the way down and there's nothing that move, moves. It, it doesn't help that you make this chain of recursion infinite. At the end, there will still be nothing that moves. You see, so what, yep. what, what you're doing is you're trying to, to create a mist of infinitude, infinite recursions, and then you're closing your eyes and saying, and it works out. No, it doesn't work out because on the <laughs> other side of the mist, there is still oh. nothing. You see what I mean? So now you may say, well, Bernardo, you don't get it. It's the intellect that is un unreliable. Okay, but then drop relational quantum mechanics because relational quantum mechanics was built according to rules of reasoning. You, so if that's the game you chose to play, then play the game consistently. And in the back of your head, you, you are aware that the intellect has its limitations, but at least whatever value it does have, you milked it because you have been intellectually consistent. Mm. But if you change the rules of the game, then it's, then it's nothing. Then you have exactly. nothing. It's just yeah. nonsense. Yeah. A miracle. Yeah. It's like that cartoon. There's a guy on the blackboard, long mathematical derivation. And then there is a nothing there, and then he continues, and then somebody else asks, what is this here in the middle? And he says, oh, here a miracle happens. <laughs> but, no, it, that's not the way to go. And what Ravelli is doing is the following. He's going to uh, Nargarjuna, who was playing a different game. 
Mm. The game Nagarjuna was mm. playing was realize the limits of the intellect. Mm. He was not building a theory on an intellectual basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On yeah. the contrary, he was trying to point out the limitations of the intellect. That's also a self-consistent game, but a different one. You can't. And what Ravel is doing yeah. is, yeah, I would do relational quantum mechanics based on the intellect and drag it as far as I can. But when it violates my metaphysical prejudices, because his metaphysical prejudice is the following, the bottom layer of reality is physical. So if physicality is relative, yeah, 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 there yeah. can be no absolute, absolute layer underneath to ground the meaning of those relations. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. physicality is the bottom layer. So if physicality is relative, then there can be nothing. <laughs> because, you see, nothing underlies physicality. That's his prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. So he follows reason yeah, until yeah. the point, the, the limit of what his prejudices accept. Yeah. And then he surrenders to his, pre to his prejudices yeah. and goes to Nargajuna and says, well, at He's the, at the, the end, thing. it's not yeah. it's turtles until the end because it's nothing. It's all nothing anyway. Yeah. I don't need to think about that. It's yeah. all nothing. Yeah. I think that is not fair play. You can't play that game. You can't yeah. play that game. Yeah, you can't because play what that Nagarjuna game. was saying is there is no thing. And that's what relational quantum mechanics states. Things are relational. They don't have absolute existence. There is no thing. Mm -hmm. But there are potentials for things because even if everything is an illusion, the illusion is not nothing. It's an illusion. Mm. It's not nothing. Mm. So something, not a thing, but Something. Yeah. Some pheno thing. phenomena. Yeah. Did you say that? Yeah. <laughs> Some existent has to be the case, even if it is just the potential for things. But that potential is not nothing. In the yeah. same way that an illusion is not nothing, yeah, there yeah. is a difference between an illusion happening and an illusion not, hap not happening. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna was saying there are no things because at the bottom level, it's only mind. Yeah. And mind is a field. Yeah. It's a set of potentials. It's yeah. not a thing. Yeah. But yeah. Rovelli is taking that to mean nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There isn't even a non-physical field because physicality is all there is in his worldview, according to his prejudices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I'm trying to say is the following. There is an absolute level to reality. It's just not physical. Mm -hmm. Physicality is relational to that absolute level. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. absolute, absolute level is mental. Yeah, and physicality yeah. is what arises when there is an interference pattern between yeah. the mentation out there and the mentation is he in here. Yeah, and if there isn't this interaction, there is no interference pattern and there is no physicality. Yeah, but the mental stuff is still there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Th that seems to me the only intellectually uh, or intellectually consistent conclusion you can derive from the intellectual edifice of relational quantum mechanics, and that its author violates the direct implication of his own work because of a metaphysical prejudice and then appealing to somebody who was precisely trying to undermine an intellectual yeah, yeah, game yeah. it's like come on don't yeah, do fabulous. this fabulous yeah it's like when you do when you engage when one engages in in um, buddha's dialectic and debate you may you may have seen these videos of monks doing you know the, the, the waving thing and they throw their hand and they're and I, i've had the great wonder um, of training in that kind of dialectic and one of the classic things you do there that's incredibly elegant very precise is um you cannot jump out of these um frameworks you you set a particular set of frameworks you have agreed upon definitions 
And the only way that has the devastating power that it's designed to have is if you don't jump ship. If you stay within the paradigms of that particular approach and don't have the impulse to jump out, I like that because that's cheating. That that doesn't work in that yeah, way. And, so. and, and even beyond that, Andrew, look, I, I'm keenly aware of keenly aware of the limitations of the intellect. But even if I if I accept that the game we play today in our culture is an intellectual game, it will probably take a thousand years for it to be a more mature game than that. But even within the parameters of the intellect, we we can extract still much better conclusions than we are extracting today. So even given the limitations of the intellect, we can still do a lot better within those limitations. That's because right. materialist is, materialism is empirically contradictory, internally uh, contradictory. It, it has arguably no explanatory power because it doesn't explain experience. And all we have is experience. Right. I mean... It, it's just nonsense. It's, it's right. very bad. It's bullshit. It's the worst yeah. option on the table today. We can do better than that yeah. before we start having the ambition to transcend the intellect. Yeah. You know, why would we, would we be talking about transcending the intellect if even within the intellect, we are doing so poorly? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because in the, in the spiritual business that I also roll in, there's, there's a very insidious anti-intellectual sentiment that somehow the intellect is the enemy. And I think it's probably for those who don't have the, the, the qualities to even engage that particular skill set. But, you know, for, for us, the charter is the strengths and the limitations of the intellectual approach. And then to come back, um, and if you don't mind me asking you a little bit more personally, if you, if you don't want to go here, that's totally fine. The place of praxis in your life, because you mentioned in, in Dream, uh, Dreamed Up Reality, I think that was called the book, you talk about your, your four experiments or so. But I was curious when I read it, why you never actually mentioned what those experiments were. They were they were never really articulated as such. And I said, why isn't he telling us what these things actually were? So it seems like you engaged in some praxis and I'm, it, it, you, you don't have to reveal those to me, but I'm curious why you didn't mention that. And then what in fact is the role of practice, practice uh, praxis in your life today? Yeah. So uh, back to dreamed up reality, I, I don't, uh, lists exactly what were the procedures I, I undertook because I'm keenly aware that these things are very personal. Mm. What works for me doesn't work for someone else. So I didn't want to give a recipe and cause disappointment be, because you know Fair what enough. ended up working for me was not something I, I saw anybody else doing mm. in the exact way I was doing. It took trial mm. and error, uh, which I do say in the book that it took trial and error uh, to get there. Um, I have a very particular, we all have very particular in, idiosyncratic uh, mental makeups, psychic men, uh, makeups. So it's, I, I don't think that what works for me would work for you. I mean, I, I am particularly hard-headed. Um, um, I am not one to open up easily. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. um, I, I valued strict rigorous thinking all my life and it's very hard for me to depart from that and mm -hmm. be more open more soft more mushy uh, it's very hard for me and sometimes that's exactly what you need if you are going to explore yet unexplored territory that you haven't visited before um, so for me it was a particular combination of uh, because of the country in which i live certain psychedelic substances are legal to the mm -hmm. point that before i took psychedelics for the first time i went to my doctor 
and asked him to check my heart and my liver to make sure that I would metabolize it properly and right. not have any concerns. So I, you know, I got professional help in that. And um, um, each of the experiments I, I described were different, different combinations of these things, but they involved mm. binaural rhythms, mm. uh, uh, what uh, at the time was called mind machines, uh, certain precise sequence of flashings and colors in your eyes that uh, have an effect of sort of uh, locking your neural activity, mm-hmm. it makes neuronal firings go into lockstep according to a certain rhythm, yep. which has certain effects. Um, psilocin or psilocybin, which yep. is the drug in, in, in magic, the, mushrooms. Uh, yep. magic mushrooms, which I grew myself. I, I didn't buy the drug. I bought spores. I took care of my mushrooms myself every day uh, um, until harvest time. Um, I used certain meditative practices, mm-hmm. um, uh, especially when the trip is beginning, because w- w- what I realized is that um, the trip tends to amplify what you bring to it in the beginning. So if you bring certain anxieties to it, yeah. that tends to become a theme. Yeah. Uh, uh, n- not the main theme. The main theme is totally out of your control. It seems random. Um, but the, the ancillary themes and the, the tone of the trip seems to be calibrated by that. So I did some meditative practices because I wanted to focus the trip on getting philosophical answers or thinking philosophically as opposed to watching, um, having hallucinations of, you know, beautiful aliens and spaceships. And that's not what I was doing it for. It happened, <laughs> but that's not what I, was, what I was doing it for. I wanted, for me, it was not for fun. I was doing that. I had an an, an investigative program because I was writing about the mind. So I thought I cannot sincerely and honestly write about the mind without exploring mind uh, along every avenue available to me in this world today. And I could do that legally and medically safely. So I, I did do that. I also didn't want to encourage people to yeah. think that psychedelics are the panacea. Yep. For me, they seem to have been necessary because my mind is very hard. Um, but I know a lot of people who I think would not win anything from psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, they are already open. They don't need the hammer of a psychedelic to break that door open. Their door is already gently open. Um, and it may just lead to confusion to certain types of mental makeup. So I don't think it's a panacea. So that's the reason. And also uh, what you saw there in, uh, articulated as four experiments there were more than four experiments. It's mm. just a literary literary device to try to condense the information in a way that is easy to absorb. But things were not as neat as they are in there. You know, some of those things I did on my own. Some in some of those experiences I was part of a program. So it it, 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 it I talk about this other part in um, modern allegory. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it is impossible to make a book understandable and easy to read if you just dump everything as it actually was because reality is messy and confusing and you have to distill the value out of that somehow um so in morning allegory i explicitly say this is a myth what you're about to read in part three is a myth it's not the literal truth but it captures aspects of what i think is the truth Mm. um so yeah that's and that's the reason now practice for me at that time was the big thing. My life 
run around practice, either intellectual practice or uh, uh, discipline practice of mind exploration, uh, which is what I have just described. Today, there is no practice. Mm. Today, mm. because once, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm deluding myself about this, but this is what I believe. Um, once you learn to recognize the movements of the impersonal within you, you're not setting the agenda anymore. Uh, that story of, oh, I've set a certain practice for me so I can get to that thing. No, 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 that, that, this dissolves like butter under the sun. It's not how life goes. Uh, uh, you just follow the movements of the impersonal and you make adjustments to it uh, because listening to the impersonal is a noisy process. You, mm -hmm. you, know, you have to be sure that you're really listening to the impersonal. Yeah. Yep. So sometimes you have to apply some filterings and you know, or, or hold back until you're more confident that that's the way nature wants to go. But right now, my practice is listen to the impersonal and don't resist it. That's and so total. <laughs> and so, say a little bit more about that um, because that's a languaging um, that may not be familiar to our audience. When you say listen to the impersonal, say more about that. Tuning in to, for instance, the impersonal very recently the last two years, I felt a movement of it within me that if I were to put in language, it's not linguistic at all. It's not like a voice. It's not that. But if I were to translate it into words, the movement was the following. Um, uh, nurture the contact with the child in you again. Say that again, Bernardo. Say it again. Nurture your contact with the child within oh, you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, and... And usually you recognize these things as movements of the impersonal because they have some telltale characteristics. Mm -hmm. The number one is it doesn't give a damn about your personal safety or comfort. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care if you're, if what it's pushing you to, to uh, will contribute to your career or destroy your career, whether, you will to, whether it will contribute or destroy your finances, whether it will help your status improve or be destroyed it doesn't care about any of this and and that's where the ego has to come in and say well yes i will follow you but a roof needs to be above my head tomorrow <laughs> because the impersonal is well impersonal yeah. it, it's not concerned about your personal safety and comfort so the ego has to play a little role there jung emphasized this a lot the role of consciousness in modulating the unconscious which were his words for what i'm talking in terms of the personal and the impersonal. Um, that's one characteristic. Another telltale characteristic is it doesn't tell you the reason it's pointing you in this or that direction. It's not giving you the whole story. It doesn't bother to explain you why you have to do this. How does it fit in the greater scheme of things? Mm. In, in, no, that doesn't come to you. Um, when it's your personal bullshit, yeah. Then there is a whole narrative. There is a yeah. neatly closed narrative. I, ne yeah. I need to do this because that. And then in five years, this is what will happen. Yeah. And I want that because my career or my money or my stats. Now, when it has this <clears throat> neatly woven narrative, it's that's your not, personal book. That's not, that was, that's a very passionate statement because that was exactly what I was about to ask you. How do you know, like Feynman said, that you're just not kidding yourself and you just answered that? How do you know that it is in fact it, it, um, impersonal slash transpersonal versus? I'll give you the honest answer. I don't know how I know, 
what I do know is the following. The question, how do I know, has come to play no role in my mm. life. Mm. I don't know whether you can make heads or tails. Of yeah, this, I'll totally. But I'll totally yeah. I don't feel any impulse to ask the question. So if you force the question on me, I would say, I don't know how I know. But I don't need to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. I'm very comfortable following what I am labeling as the impersonal without knowing. I think that's okay. real. I would say that's real Gnosticism. I mean, is that one label that you could append to that experience? I am, you know, I, I tend to avoid labels if they are not needed because yeah. you don't know what baggage they carry, yeah, especially true. a label like Gnosticism yep. or the mother load, God, right. which is, you know. Right. You, you don't know what people will interpret. So I, I prefer to talk about things as simply bare bones and honestly as I can. Yeah. Uh, for one reason or another, right or wrong, I don't feel the need to ask this question. Like, how do I know? Mm. I don't know if I know. Yeah. And it's not important. Yeah. I am uh, um, comfortable following along what I'm calling the impersonal. Yeah. And it doesn't tell me the whole story. It doesn't give me the whys. It just shows the what's. Yeah. So yeah. part of the what's is having this conversation with you today. Yeah, exactly. Even though yeah. in my ego, I'm like, preaching doesn't help, didn't help yeah. for 2,000 years. Yeah. Why Why do I think yeah. that it will help now? Yeah. So yeah. my ego doesn't understand, but I've come to a point where my ego doesn't need to understand because I know it's yeah. not about me. Yeah. Yeah. I Beautiful. feel it's not about me and, and I act accordingly. So I don't need to know the why's. I don't need to know how it all builds up to the end result. I don't need to know the end result. All I need to know is that I am comfortable following this movement of what I consider the impersonal within me. Yeah. And that's enough. Yeah. So that's Beautiful. my practice. My practice now, I can limit it to two words. I pay attention. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's all I do. Yeah. I pay attention. Yeah. I pay attention to the movements of the impersonal and don't resist yeah. it. Yeah. And in the process of following it, yeah. of you know, going along with it, I pay attention. Yeah. In this blood, I decided <clears throat> to pay attention, but because I can't help. This is this is what I do. I pay attention. This is this again for maybe for a future conversation because I want to respect your time. But this the, this leads into something we haven't really fully un unpacked is the, the, the whole lucidity principle, as lucidity is is represented in. Um, lucid dreams and the nocturnal meditations and the like, but we can come back to that later. What I love, <clears throat> excuse me, Bernardo, what I really love about this is, is the refreshing quality of your practice because my bias, and, and, and this is why I don't I, I have want, a practice and I just pay attention. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. But, but in a sense, exactly. But, but it's very interesting because I mean, my my bias, my predisposition, my whatever is are the contemplative so-called meditative arts. I, I I've done a three retreat, forty thousand hours of meditation. It's a massive part of my life. And what I so appreciate about what you say, and it was similar to I had a five hours of conversation over two sessions with um, um, LSD in the Mind of the Universe, a Christopher Beish, who went on a twenty-year journey. And then spent 20 years unpacking it, exploring 500 microgram doses of LSD and how that became his path, his practice. And, and, and so therefore, I, I, I love, I'm, I'm so interested these days in the spirit of integral approaches, how other people 
row their boat, how, how they engage in qualities of opening, awakening, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And, and, and one limitation I see, again, in this kind of reifying tendency that everybody has is even if it, even it's if it's the great meditative community, the 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 shadow sides, the near enemies of even the art of meditation, that it's not necessarily one size fits all <clears throat> enterprise, and that there are other ways to walk our our paths based on our idiosyncrasies and predispositions towards greater openness and awakening. And so I I love to hear this sort of thing. Um, dialogue is path. Engaging in what we're doing here is a type of praxis to to basically create you know, avenues of, of opening. And so, Bernardo, again, I, I, I cannot share with you how delightful this has been for me. I wanted to read, just to give you some sense, there are a couple of things, very, very brief, that you may not be aware of, that may be of some interest to you, um, to return to close up a couple of things. I meant to do this two and a half hours ago, but I just didn't get to it. The, the confirmation from the Buddhist tradition of so much of your work. So um, one of my main teachers, Kempo Kartar Rinpoche, um, I have this stuck up around my house, one simple line, the only obstacle is to regard something as other than mind. Beautiful. And then the four yogic uh, contemplations. This is fantastic. Outer objects are observed to be nothing but mind. Thus, outer objects are not observed as such. With outer objects being unobservable, a mind cognizing them is not observed either. Not observing both, non-duality is observed. And then one more from Karmapa Rangjung Dorje. Looking at objects, there are no objects. They are seen to be mind. Looking at mind, there is no mind. It is empty of essence. Looking at both liberates dualistic clinging in its own ground. May we realize luminosity, the true nature of mind. And so I just wanted to pin, because I know you spend so much time with your dear friend Rupert, who I adore. His approach, principally from Advaita Vedanta, he's brilliant in that regard. And so I'm not um, that up on what your relationship is with a Buddhist approach to things. And so I wanted to just ping a couple contributions that I think were so resonant with so much of what you've talked about. And as, as we do start to close up for today, um, any question that I should have asked, didn't ask any, anything that you wish I, um, I don't do that. I don't have agendas. <laughs> Great. I go with the flow, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And for listeners who are interested in exploring your work, you know, your, your output is, is voluminous, is profound. What might you recommend? Two questions, an introduction to your work, and then the impossible question of your own output, what is your favorite book? I can share you what, what mine is, but what, are, what, what can you share with our listeners to introduce, you, introduce them to your work? Well, there is an in-depth and completely free introduction to my work, which is a six-hour-long video course um, on the YouTube channel of Essentia Foundation. Um, it's the analytic idealism course. It's completely for free. It's on YouTube. It's not even monetized. So you will not even get ads. <laughs> you don't need to send your email address to subscribe to anything, nothing, let alone payment. Um, it's six hours long. Uh, it took me a few weeks 
to do. And I tried to tell as much as possible in as easy a language as possible across the seven modules of that course. It's seven videos, a little under an hour, each one of them. So that would be the way to go if you don't want to commit money or the effort of reading a book. If you just want to watch a video, you'll be done in a week watching a video of less than one hour a day. Uh, it's very low threshold. Do that. And that may be enough or not. If it's not enough, and then I will answer the, your second question. My favorite book is not the world's favorite book of mine. Hmm. My favorite book is more than allegory. Oh, well. Because oh, it was well. my second attempt to talk about something that isn't intellectual. Hmm. Right? It was my second attempt to not speak a purely intellectual language. I begin intellectual because I need people to board my boat. And uh, so I need to make it amenable and pleasant and, and harmless uh, to people in appearance. But once they board my boat, then I will steer it towards waters that are beyond the intellect. So it's the only book where I try to articulate in a seemingly intellectual way the reality, which is the most disturbing aspect of reality, that everything comes out of nothing. So it's yeah. the one book where I, I, I don't write it this way. I, I, I make it innocent <laughs> sounding which in part two when I talk about time. But if you ask me what has been the most important book that has come into the world through me, that's the one. That's the book I like to read. If you know what I mean, this stuff is not mine. You, I'm yeah, not talking yeah. about channeling here. And yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, I'm not channeling news. any any right. alien. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. It's very bad taste stuff. But this stuff doesn't come through Bernardo. It comes through Bernardo, but not from Bernardo. That's it's just the way it is. You know, I'm not saying that to put myself down or to yeah. put myself up. Totally, it's just it. an elementary fact of the matter, and I would have to be blind to not realize this. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So as a reader of the stuff that nature is doing through me, that's the book I like the most. That's fantastic. And, and really, this is beautiful because it, it, it bespeaks to the artistry in your work that it's, you know, many creative artists, countless, often speak, if they're honest, that they simply get out of the way. And then what, whatever it is just comes through and then... Um, Sometimes you go back, reread it, and say, "Hey, that that wasn't too bad," but it didn't. Of it didn't, didn't come from me. It's the ocean of nature churning, and it tries to find find a sort of a, a least resistant path to go somewhere. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and if you're standing in the right place at the right time, it will go through you. Right. And then right. you can resist it, or maybe yeah. you don't resist and you let it happen. So, well, if you resist it, then you then you can get electrocuted. If you don't resist you it, suffer. then you then you become electrified. Then you light up. Otherwise, yeah. you burn up. And that's what Nietzsche and, and other great artists who perhaps maybe didn't understand that particular process somehow appropriated, grasped, resisted, or whatever, and then they they get crispy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't you think it's uh, it's very difficult to hold that charge and not let it flow through exactly uh, it's tough stuff and then but but you learn that after 10 years of suffering it's not something at least me maybe i'm just stupid but it, it took me over 10 years of mm. suffering to mm. soften me soften mm. me until i was like okay this is how nice. it is and yeah. now it's obvious it's obvious that the best i can possibly do with my life is to trust that 
nature knows better because I'm yeah. just a monkey running around a, a little rock hurtling through infinite yeah. space. Who am yeah. I to know anything? So all I can do is to not resist whatever nature is trying to do through me. It's and like, when I read this stuff that comes, that, that is on the page at, at the end, I go like, yeah, this is good stuff. I need exactly. to know this. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. So it's really so that gives me confidence that it's okay to let nature do its its thing. Thing through me. Yeah. It's the best it can do. Yeah. And it's beautiful, isn't it, Bernardo? Because it, it really helps people work with this question of what should I do with my life? Well, it's what does life want to do with me? Surrender, exactly. open, and it's not thy my will be done, it's thy will be done. And then in a certain way, not in any self-aggrandizing capacity. Really, in a certain sense, you 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 act as a representative of reality, as an agent of reality, you know, as a kind of transducer of that. And so as we close up, what's next? What's on the agenda um, for you? More <laughs> more books, more no agendas. No, no agenda. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow I will know what I need to do when I wake up and during yeah. my breakfast, I pay attention. I will know enough. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and if I don't, then I don't know. Then yeah. It's okay too. Yeah. I'm writing a book, which I started last year, and then I stopped. It's been six months now that they didn't Mm. write a single word more. Mm. And I'm very curious where it's going to go. I have no Mm. idea. Mm. Maybe tomorrow, it has happened before. Maybe tomorrow I wake up and I go like, I'm going to write the whole day today. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, but that's not what I feel right now. What I feel right now is reconnect with the kid in you. Yeah. So... That's what it is today. <laughs> yeah. And then it becomes a wonderful dance. Then, you know, to, in my own experience, it's a dance that you no longer lead this dance. Reality, reality leads this dance, right? We never lead it. We just have an illusion that we are leading it. Yeah, exactly. You're never in control. You were never in control. You will never be. There yeah. is no such a thing as yeah. being in control. And what most people don't realize is that when you surrender to the impersonal, if I want to personalize it, I'll call it the, the, the diamond, which mm-hmm. is what Western philosophers have done since Socrates and his diamond. You personalize the movements of the impersonal within you by giving it a name, mm-hmm. which was corrupted later and turned into demons, which was not at all the original meaning, but n- never mind. So uh, what people don't understand is when you accept to be in, the serv- in, in service to the diamond, you become a slave, but it is it is in that slavery that yeah. total freedom resides. Yeah. yeah. Because when you think the ego is in control, it, you have no freedom. Yeah. Because you have to be in control. And that's incredibly confining. Yeah. Incredibly confining. It rules your whole life that need to try and be in control. And when you accept service to the diamond, you are absolutely free. Because you just... Don't take the responsibility for the end result. You don't take responsibility for understanding all the whys and hows and how it all comes together and what's the purpose. No, you don't need to know any of that. All you need to know is what does the diamond want to do through me? Yeah, and I will make sure that there is a roof over my head and yeah. enough money in the bank to pay for my health care and put food on the table and preserve my relationship with my partner yeah. and keep my cat safe. But yeah. beyond that... It's not, it's not my responsibility. I am free to be a slave, the ultimate freedom. Yeah, beautiful. Bernardo, what what a, a honor it has been. You're incredibly generous with your with your time, what you've given 
me over these last couple of years, and I can't wait to finish the corpus of your work studying it. It's really no small thing. And so on behalf of my community, this has been really such a delight for me. I so appreciate you taking the time. And perhaps at a future date, when I go through the other um, books that I haven't read, to come back, um, I, I'd still like to explore the, the dream principle, dream as manifestation of mind. Again, there's so much to go, but I think for today, this has been an enormous generous uh, gift from you. And so on behalf of our community, deep our gratitude. It's very it's grateful. It's been a pleasure. I had fun too. So thank you guys. Yeah. Take care, my friend. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for joining us. And a big thanks to Bernardo for taking the time to share his amazing mind. If you enjoyed this offering, be sure to check out all the other conversations on the edge of mind. 